Hey, Sox fans. Welcome to Good Guys Talk Back, a local fan-centric Chicago White Sox podcast. Hosted by Nick Morowski and Pat Hester. Hey, Sox fans. Welcome back to Good Guys Talk Back, episode 239. I am Nick Morowski. This is a fan-centric Chicago White Sox podcast, live on our YouTube channel on Sunday nights. Find the audio absolutely everywhere. Got so much to get to. Pat Hester on assignment, and I am lucky. You folks are lucky. Steve and Tony from Socks on Tap uh, joining uh, the episode as we chop all things up for our 60 and 96 Chicago White Sox. Steve and Tony, welcome. Nick, thanks for having us on. It's always good to get together with you and talk socks. We've had the chance to do this a couple of times, and uh, it's always a pleasure to uh, share the airwaves with you here. Yeah, Tony, welcome. This is uh, your first time, but you are no stranger to White Sox content. Yeah, uh, happy to be here, Nick, and uh, happy to share the airwaves once again with uh, NWI Steve. You know, it's, <laughs> we've we've talked before, Steve. Nice, nice to see you again. A couple, two, three times. Yeah, right. Uh, you guys, uh, man, you guys follow this team like your life depends on it. It's been like that for several years. Um, and obviously, one of the most difficult situations, whether you're a content creator, whether you're a passive fan, a diehard fan, whatever your relationship is with the White Sox, uh, this has been absolutely miserable. Trying to avoid 100 losses here uh, with six to play. Uh, this past week, we got some insight in the front office, uh, some names that aren't too shocking if you've been watching the White Sox way in the relationship with the Kansas City Royals, but kind of wanted to start there on the episode, uh, get your you know thoughts, opinions. You know, Steve, I'll go with you first. Uh, Josh Barfield coming in as the assistant general manager. Uh, Gene Watson uh, is coming in to uh, scouting Brian Bannister. Uh, Bannister and Watson have clear ties to, you know, the Royals and Grafol and Getz. I mean, what were your initial reactions uh, when these names were leaked? So it was interesting. I was actually in Oakland on Tuesday when this stuff came out, and I was several hours behind the news cycle as it would happen. Um Anthony and I had actually talked about the name Brian Bannister the week prior. Um, just about. I can't you know, confirm maybe, that. I can't confirm that for you, Steve. <laughs> just, just maybe that you know, should Ethan Katz really be on the hot seat? And if, if so, who's a guy that I would like to see them get? And Brian Bannister was the guy I immediately went to, um, and that stems from reading the book The MVP Machine back in I think it was 2018, 2019. And there's a couple of important pieces um, relating to Bannister in there. And there's almost an entire chapter dedicated to it. I'm going to go back and reread that here. But the basic uh, you know, premise behind the content with him is that he's uh, of the mindset that individuals in Major League Baseball and really in all walks of life need to follow what they refer to as growth mindset. And you need to constantly be evolving, looking for the next thing that's going to give you a competitive advantage. You might be doing something right now that is working for you, but you've got two, maybe three years max before your competition realizes what you're doing and catches up to it. So you need to always be looking for that next thing. So that was particularly fascinating hearing hearing Bannister and, and seeing those quotes and just his approach and his belief that you have to constantly be 
tweaking things and always be looking for that next thing to give you an advantage to help from a player development standpoint, from a scouting standpoint, whatever it is, you can't stay stagnant, which we all know is a big issue for this White Sox organization staying stagnant. So the Bannister hire is something that I was very pleased to see. Um, didn't have a whole lot of insight into, into Barfield, but kind of going through and looking at some of his background, his time with the Arizona Diamondbacks in the scouting arena. Diamondbacks got a really good farm system. They got a lot of good quality young talent. This is a team that's going to go to the playoffs this year. And they've got more talent on the rise. So maybe bringing in somebody from an external organization that has had success recently building a farm system, I think that could be a positive as well if they implement some of the things that uh, they were doing in Arizona. Gene Watson, I don't have a whole lot of background on other than you know what you mentioned, his time with the Royals there. So um, that and, and the relationship with Pedro Grafal, that's a strike against him in my view right there. But, you know, we'll we'll see what happens with that. Tony, let me talk about that uh, relationship with Pedro Grafol and, and this connection with Chris Getz and, and, and the whole Kansas City White Sox. Like, what, what is going on here? And when people have asked me, well, like, what do you want to see Chris Getz do? Or what did you, what did you want to see the White Sox do with the open managerial position last fall? I kept saying, go outside of the organization, find a successful organization, somebody that knows how this is done. They have learned from the best. Um, and they could bring in not just new blood, but a, a successful new mindset. Does it, I mean, how troubling is it that there's these, these little pockets, these little connections with the Royals and, and does the familiarity with Grafol help or is it, you know what, this is just them just being comfortable with each other. And that's all this is in these types of moves. I would lean towards the latter there, Nick, in, in terms of my evaluation of it. It seems like this is, you know, we're going to get our group of guys together uh, type thing. That's what it has written all over it. Um, you know, Steve touched on a couple of things with two of the other hires, but this is the one that sort of is troubling to me because it was first memes and now it's becoming reality. When we talk about the Kansas City royalification of the Chicago White Sox, um, and I'm waiting for the next domino to fall because I know it's going to piss Steve off. And that would be something like a, a massive trade this winter uh, for a catcher um, or, or something like that to continue to bring these guys in. This goes a little bit further into the roster. Look who's signed here for a very long time, and that's Andrew Benintendi. Uh, that move has already been made. Uh, he's got Royals all over him. Uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, but for all intents and purposes here, Nick, I don't know where you fall on this, but what exactly, how, how exactly do you get yourself out of this or change that narrative if you're the front office here? Is there anything that they can even do to change that? Or is it going to be set in stone for the next five, six years before these guys either see themselves out of town, uh, find new jobs, or it crashes and crumbles further than it has? Is there anything that they can do to change that narrative that this is not going to be Kansas City Royal Baseball 2.0 played on the south side of Chicago? That is what we're going to have to watch this offseason and, and watch it closely. I mean, I'm someone that drank the Kool-Aid of, wow, Grafol's bringing in his own staff. This is probably going to be helpful for him. Uh, obviously, not everybody was new, but he's going to be comfortable with some of these guys from the Royals and and. They are going to be, uh, you know, caught up to speed right away. You can hit the ground running. 
it just didn't seem like any of the things that he was trying to put into play were communicated or were executed or listened to. It was all just lip service, right? It was all great talk in the fall and a heck of a camelback ranch. And, you know, things are going swimmingly in Arizona. And then just, you know, after the Houston series, all downhill. Um, if you're going to say, Jerry Reinsdorf, right in front of everybody, and look, I don't want to bring in an outside uh, general manager, VP, because they're going to have to get caught up to speed. They're going to have to vet everybody, and they're going to have to do an evaluation. That We're putting ourselves a year behind. But you're then going to bring in outside hires, okay, from outside of the organization. You're going to let Getz bring people in. Steve, does that... Is that hypocritical? Are, are we are we saying, well, aren't they going to have to figure out how things are doing uh, on the south side? Or can Getz and Pedro catch them up to speed quickly? And if that was the case, you know, then I think you might be able to get rid of Pedro Crafol and say, well, I think Getz can catch him up to speed on how this year went, whoever that new managerial hire is. You know, why not do it the right way? Clean house. If you want Getz, fine, but bring in a brand new manager that's got some success, that has a proven track record, and start that way. I do not like the way they're puzzling things right now. To your point there, Nick, I do find it to be very hypocritical of Jerry Reinsdorf saying that, you know, you couldn't bring in outside sources to do a thorough evaluation from the top down and figure out the deficiencies of this organization. Um, from an infrastructure standpoint, we can all see it. There's a lot wrong here. And Chris Getz has played a major part in that poor infrastructure. Let's be real about this. He has been overseeing this minor league organization for over six plus years now. Since he became the farm director, what is his calling card? What does he have to show for his efforts other than Luis Robert, who is just apparently so physically gifted that he could overcome the nonsense that is White Sox player development? Other than that, what does Chris Getz have to show for it? So I, I think that was extremely hypocritical of Jerry. But then to your point about Getz being able to bring in outside voices, Barfield, um, Brian Bannister, Gene Watson. These are people that I would assume they're going to come in here and they're going to look at this situation from a 10,000 foot view and say, there's a lot wrong here. There's a lot of things that have to be cleaned up. And this is not going to be an overnight fix, no matter how much a certain 87 year old might want it to be. And Tony and I have gone back and forth on this discussion as it relates to Pedro Grafol. I know Chris Getz came out and said publicly that uh, Pedro Grafol is going to be the manager and Grafol is doing, you know, he's, he's had his lips puckered up pretty well here since uh, Getz came on board for, for both him and for the chairman. But this thing has just been an absolute train wreck since about July I mean, they're 25, 26 games under 500 uh, since July 1st here. And that, in a lot of ways, has to be a direct reflection on Pedro Gafrol and the poor messaging that has taken place here. He can talk all he wants about Oscar Colas needing to dial back his motor and not doing things the right way. Whose job is it to make sure that a rookie that doesn't have major league experience is doing things the way that you want them done? 
who does that fall on? Yeah, I I agree with you on the the lack of like ability, the authoritative ability that Pedro Grifol clearly uh, is is void. He just doesn't have uh, the opportunity or the, the voice to be listened to, to command uh, a direction. And Tony, I, is this something that can really turn around? Are, are, are you think the socks are looking at like, well, if we make some roster moves, if we make some personnel moves, maybe we'll get guys in that will respect uh, Pedro. They're young enough to not know enough and he can get his way pushed through. How does how does Pedro Grifol change this? Because I think it was more than just, well, I've never managed before. You've been around baseball, you know, all your life, you know, at a high level. It seems like you just might not know how to manage these types of personalities. And that could be a major problem. This is clearly a guy who's in over his head. I mean, that's plain and simple, the answer. He was in over his head when he started with this. Nick, I don't think you can get the locker room to respect your voice after the shit show that this year was. There's not really going to be that chance unless you're clearing out players, like you said. And I think that flies in the face of the messaging that the team has had for the entire, since Rick Hahn and Kenny have, have left the building, uh, said that, you know, you, we can turn this around next season. Are you going to send Pedro Grafold down to AAA and bring up that crop of players with them? Because I don't know what else you're going to do to get that respect in the locker room. There's still going to be guys here who knew what a disaster this was. You go back to the Keenan Middleton comments from earlier this season. Uh, the team's had so much dysfunction there. And I think if you really look at this, the players talk, who's going to want to come sign with this franchise over the off season and play for Pedro Grifol? What has he done uh, that, any one of these guys is going to turn around and say, yeah, come here. This is great. This is an awesome environment. Pedro Grifol, Chris Getz, they've got this ship right, and we're going to turn this around. It's sort of, it's almost embarrassing how bad this season was given the expectations. And he's a huge part of that. They talk about, you know, everybody's being evaluated. I wonder if it's within the possibility, and Steve is correct. We've gone back and forth on this. Is there going to be a wake-up moment for Getz and the rest of his newly hired front office to say, let's not do this again this year. If Jerry Reinsdorf cares about one thing, it's ticket sales. Who's showing up to the ballpark to watch a Pedro Grifol managed team next season? I think that's a very valid question. And they need to look in the mirror and, and ask themselves that question uh, before they make any final decisions. But they've already spoken on this. And, yeah. you know, we talk about, you know, owning up to, you know, your words and, and being hypocritical. Uh, it, it would look very hypocritical if one of the first things Chris got said wasn't what he actually followed through on. Um, there's repercussions for that as well with, you know, other managerial choices. Uh, so, you know, you're already behind the eight ball here. It's, it's, it's a really ugly situation. It is. And, and you mentioned, uh, you know, players who could possibly want to come to the South side and, and one obvious name. And, you know, we kind of alluded to it uh, is Salvi Perez. Why is that a nightmare, Steve? Why could it possibly be a good thing? It's a nightmare because he's not really good at baseball anymore, and he's expensive. Um, I think portions of people within this fan base 
still remember that he hit, I think it was, you know, 48 home runs in 2019, I want to say. But by opening day 2024, that will have been five years ago. Five years on a catcher's knees and a guy that, you know, has been pretty durable for a good portion of his career. That's a lot of miles right there. This is not a guy that has ever been a high on base guy. So you're making a lot of outs and the slug has gone down considerably. And when he first came up to the Royals, he was looked at as a solid defender behind the plate. If you watch Royals games, if just the eye test, and then you look at some of the data, those days are gone. For all the clamoring and, and all the angst about Yasmani Grandal over the last couple of years and his defensive ineffectiveness, Salvador Perez is not fixing that issue. Um, in fact, you could almost make the case that all he's, it's going to do is exacerbate it at a significantly higher dollar portion. So to me, I just I can't see a positive scenario from Sal Perez being a guy that has acquired over the winter here. And Tony and I have joked about this too. And I said, I can't wait to see which, you know, prospect, whether it's Brian Ramos or who it's going to be that goes to Kansas city so that the Royals pay down some of the freight on the deal. And then ultimately, you know, Brian Ramos ends up hitting 35 homers a year playing uh quality third base for the Royals for a decade. Cause that yeah. would just be so white Sox. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, Tony, I, I, I struggle with the positives, but the only narrative that I am, I can kind of create if I'm playing like devil's advocate, is Pedro says to Getz and Jerry, "I've lost the clubhouse. I've got a guy that respects me. We have a good relationship. I need this. G give me this. I need this." And out of more of just morale, somebody that can be my voice, somebody that can get the clubhouse in order, they will fall in line for this veteran. And I've got, I've got an ally in this because it doesn't look like things are going to go in the, in the, you know, in the positive direction right now in, in 2024. So at least give me this guy so I can be in the trenches with, is that worth it? Is that worth the gamble? Shouldn't that be the biggest red flag to Jerry Reinsdorf that he should fire <laughs> Pedro Griffel, Nick? I mean, honestly, I, I, I sort of, I, I get where you're going on it but i would if i was jerry reinsdorf in that position or any baseball owner and my manager comes to me and says i've lost the clubhouse <laughs> is this really the type of shit that goes on behind the scenes there is that how we've made some of these moves throughout the years i don't know that just screams dysfunction to me um i don't think we should be trying to save face for pedro grafol here in front of the rest of the guys in the clubhouse by bringing in Salvador Perez, if if that's how that actually transpires, Nick, I'm more worried now about yeah. this new regime than I even was with the last one. Yeah, I, I mean, you, it's just, you know, uh, comedy at, at that point. Uh, it, it's sad comedy and in a weird, screwed up way, it'd, it'd be interesting if that's what, you know, Pedro just said, yeah, I got nothing to lose. I'll just come out and say it. Uh, I have no idea what's going on. And I need somebody to have my back. And uh, this is a good friend of mine who I respect. And I, it, that's just almost the way things have been going. It's just like, deal with it, Sox fans. You know, like, what else? What are you going to do? Like, I'm I'm making these decisions and we're going to go with it. Um, let's talk current, 
you know, roster, current players. You know, I'll stick with you here on this, uh, Tony. We talked knees with, uh, you know, Perez and Kopech just had a knee issue, a knee operation uh, just, you know, recently. What a just what a nightmare of a season for him. I mean, you could see it, can't you? You can see it in his postgame interviews and his reactions, of course, when he's caught, you know, by a camera. He doesn't know what's going on. And he has been put through, uh, you know, flip flop and we need him. Right. Or we need a version of him that we maybe have not seen before. What do we make of a Michael Kopech right now as we're entering this off season where he's rehabbing for what it could be six to eight weeks. He's going to be on the mend and then he's going to be able to ramp things up with a, an ambiguous, you've got the stuff to be a reliever, but we want you to have the mentality of being a starter. I, I can't make any, you know, I, I, I keep going back and forth with Pat every week we touch in on Kopech. It's a, it's a new angle. It's a new thread every single week. Where are you at with Kopech? I mean, I think this is really going to fall on is Ethan Katz back with this team next year and what is the the plan for the starting rotation? I've wanted Kopech to be that starter. I feel like, you know, he was a high-profile piece that came back in a very, very, if not one of the most high-profile deals uh, of this entire rebuild. Now, he wasn't the centerpiece of it, but he had starter written all over him at the time. I mean, he came up as a starter. Uh, they flipped him to the bullpen. We've seen this, and I think everybody in the Sox community has sort of gone back and forth on, you know, where's the best place for him. Um, it, it's really time for the organization to make a decision and stick with that going into next year. He's tried multiple times uh, to make it through a full major league season as a starter, and I don't think that's happened once. Um, whether it be various injuries, blowups, uh, we had the COVID year, uh, we had the Tommy John. It's He's lost so much development time, at least in my opinion, where you sort of have to almost cut your losses with this and say, if he's going to be uh, part of a major league roster, you know, how can I extend the most, you know, value out of what we still have with Michael Kopech? And that very well might be in the bullpen. Um, that sort of is a major subtraction to your starting rotation. Although, with that said, what has he really given you this past season that makes you think as, as a White Sox fan that he's going to be able to put all of that together with this track record thus far? Um, it, it's it's a very sobering moment when, you know, some of these guys don't work out in their intended, um, you know, position, what you thought they had as a prospect. Uh, but with with Michael, it's, it's really interesting because he does still show some flashes of that stuff. Steve, we've talked about the start in New York how many times um, we've talked about some of these ball games where he's looked like he's had perfect game, no hitter stuff. And he's just, you know, one or two minor tweaks away from getting that done. But it's a consistency thing for me. There's not enough consistency there to show he's going to make it through a season as a front of the rotation type starter. And at best, you're going to get an oft injured four or five guy in your rotation. And you can see it from this year. I think that's frustrating for him. And that leads to, you know, more blowups on the mound, more long balls, just a, a bad mental case for Michael Kopech. It's a tough decision, but I think it's going to really come down to 
is cats with this team next year. And, you know, whoever is making these decisions for the the starting rotation is going to have to solidify a plan and not do the flip-flop thing. You can't throw him into the rotation to start next season and have him in the bullpen by June or July. Yeah, I, um, that, that, that's the, that's always been the thing with me. Um, even with a guy like Oscar Colas is pick a path, pick a path and let him take that path playing that game of that. That's gotta be in it for a guy like Colas and someone like Kopech with his track record. It's a nightmare, you know, emotionally, I, I don't know where I'm at. I don't know where I'm standing. I don't know who's got confidence in with, with me. And, and so I, I empathize, but I also go back to the consistency point that you, you brought up, Tony, and I'll, and I'll go into Steve with the consistency of the core. And the core is something that Jerry Reinsdorf brought up in his you know, presser, and I think, I think Getz even hit it, of, well, with this core, we can compete. And, and of course, they always throw in the AL Central, like, you know, it's such a walk in the park for the Chicago White Sox in the AL Central, which is such a slap in the face to every other team in the AL Central. Uh, the Sox haven't done much with that standing, the fact that we're in the AL Central. But it was brought up once again. And this core, we, we can rebound with this core. But I'm sorry, we're, we're getting what we want out of Luis Robert Jr. Boy, has been, he's been fun to watch. What... Yeah defensively, offensively, he's been able to stay on the field finally. But when you look at Mankata, T.A., uh, Oloy, I guess you can throw in Vaughn now into that into that mix. And you're saying, well, are we still playing that? They have so much potential. Just wait. It's going gonna, it's gonna to snap. It's going to unlock. Are you in that mindset, Stephen? Who are you on that, uh, you know, on that with? What players specifically – because at the end of the day, for me, it's like, well, maybe they can't do it. Maybe they can't collectively do the thing that we all wanted them to do back in 2017, 2018, when we were hearing about how amazing they are. This core group to me should inspire no confidence in anyone within this fan base. Um, this is one of the things I wrote about in the offseason was the need for who I deemed the big three of Moncada, Aloy, and Robert to be both healthy and productive because we have never seen that happen for an extended period of time. We're getting it with Luis Robert Jr. this year, finally. But we saw with Moncada, he's been hurt, and then he's been ineffective. For the last six weeks now in garbage time, He's he's been okay offensively. And then you go to Aloy, slugging like 440 for a DH. That's not going to cut it. Andrew Vaughn here in his third full major league season, slugging 430 as a right-right offense-only first baseman. That's not going to cut it. So as far as I'm concerned, the only person in that core group that really is worth anything is Luis Robert Jr., now, obviously, you're stuck with Yoan Mankata. Um, you know, you got the the last guaranteed year of this deal in 2024 um, for a whopping $24 million. So you're not moving that. So that's he's going to be on the roster next year. If it were me, I would be looking to end the Aloy Jimenez experience on the south side of Chicago. It's just not 
going to translate here. You saw that that burst the last 60 games of 2022 when he was a masher again, slugging over 500. But again, he just reverts back to the guy this year that can't stay on the field consistently. And when he has been on the field, he's not produced the way that he was expected to be. I was the idiot that once famously wrote that he was going to be the first guy in White Sox history to hit 50 home runs in a season. That's not looking really good right now. And I just, I don't see that turning around in 2024. Um, At this juncture, obviously you're going to be selling him for pennies on the dollar, but you need to just turn this roster over at this point. And he is a big part of this. He gives you nothing defensively. If anything, he's a risk to himself and to Luis Robert Jr. and any infielders on, on this team when he has his glove out there. And the bat just isn't impactful enough for me. So yeah. I would certainly be looking to move on from that. Um, the Tim Anderson situation, <sighs> what a fall from grace. I mean, just two years ago, Anthony and I were in a cornfield in Iowa when he was, uh, <laughs> you know, giving us a, a movie-like ending. And now here we are, and you can make a real case here that they should not pick up that option for $14 million and run the risk of him repeating the offensive ineptitude that we have seen for the last year and a half. And I've kind of come around to the point where I don't think they should pick up the option. I think they should just, if you want to have Elvis Andrus be a stop gap until you think Colson Montgomery is ready or go to some other bargain basement shortstop option, I think that's probably the best path for everybody involved at this point. Yeah, he's a he's a curious case. Um, I know there might not be a lot out there this off season, and uh, but when you're bringing in the, these new executives, and and you got Chris Getz running things now, and maybe Pedro Grafol says, "Look, um, not only did I lose the clubhouse, and I want Salva Perez, but I I, I need different personnel. I, I need a different type of roster. This is how we want to play." You've heard things leak over the last couple of weeks about speed and how important that is. But I feel like we've got guys that have speed, but they are so closely monitored due to, you know, worrisome health issues here and there. Um, Tony, weigh in on, on T.A. and your thoughts, but I also want to get your your thought on Clevenger. And will he be wearing a White Sox uniform in 2024? Yeah, I'll, I'll handle the T.A. stuff first and we'll get to Clevenger, but I sort of agree with Steve in principle that you can cut bait with TA here, although it sort of flies in the face of let's compete, let's rebound, because I feel like the one guy that has a chance to rebound next season would be Tim Anderson. And do you really want to just throw that option aside and let him walk away for nothing? Is it worth seeing what he can do next season And if you're in the toilet, can you trade him if he's having a better year? Even if it's for lottery tickets, just some asset back from Tim Anderson would probably go over a little bit better than him walking away. Um, Although this year has been so abysmal, you would wonder, (laughs) is it even possible to get worse? And if it does you might have to cut bait with him at some point next season for nothing anyway. Um, 
on the Clevenger side, I think he's back next season. And the reason I think he's back next season is this team needs starters and Clevenger has seemingly liked it here. Um, and he's really been your best pitcher over this last little stretch. So unless Clevenger's camp knows that they can go out into the free agent market and lock up a better deal than what's on the table with him sticking here. Uh, I think he's back next season. I think he's one of your top rotation guys. Heading yeah, I, into spring training. I, I kind of am leaning towards that as well. I mean, all the other stuff, you know, aside and all the drama and everything that's gone on since, I mean, he's pitched well uh, as, as of late. I mean, heck of an outing recently and you need arms and, and, and an arm that, uh, you know, hit his 200 K recently, Dylan sees uh, Steve uh, having an off year, which uh, heavy is the head that wears the crown. He didn't win the Cy Young, but he came awfully close and, uh, the follow-up campaign is always difficult. You know, the, the bullseye is on your back. Teams are ready for you. They are the one, uh, you're the one they're going after. Now, th this is a bigger question, but if you're a Sox fan and have been a Sox fan for a while, you know what this organization does with pitching. You know, they don't sign pitching. You know, they don't go after pitching long-term. Jerry talked about it pretty openly. Uh, but going after premium pitching and in-house pitching, retaining that, uh, has been a major issue. Do you could you see the Sox hypothetically saying, "Look, 2024 is not going our way again. We're going to have to shop Cease. It's a like, goodbye, Dylan Cease. We are not able to build around you. It's, we're, we're a few years away, uh, and we're going to have to get something for you because we are not going to be holding on to you." I think the other interesting variable with Dylan Cease is Scott Boris, his agent. We all know. Um, the history there. Um, obviously, most recently, the Carlos Rodon situation and, and the not um, tendering him of a deal that allowed him to go to the San Francisco Giants and really build additional value after his solid 2021 season with the Sox. So I think we can all safely say that Dylan Cease is not going to be around here for the long haul. Um, as it relates to 2024, I think that they need to bring him back to start the year to try to rebuild some of that value because the value did take a significant hit here in the second half of this season. And I think this is going to be an interesting test case for newly hired Brian Bannister. Bannister is a guy that has really done some solid work in his time with the San Francisco organizations with reclamation projects and helping guys to maximize their performance on the field. Carlos Rodon being one of them, he was able to parlay the solid season in 2022 with the Giants under Bannister's, uh, or at least some of Bannister's direction, into what was it, $175 million deal with the Yankees? You look at some of the other guys that have come through San Francisco in recent years that have revitalized their careers, like some Alex Cobb. Alex Wood, Sean Manaya, and, and a couple of other guys. So maybe some of the principles and some of the ideas that a Brian Bannister can bring in can help get Dylan C's back on track, restoring some of that value. It would be nice if that translated into more wins for the White Sox, but I just don't think there's going to be enough around him for that to be meaningful. So that kind of shifts the focus a little bit to restoring some of that value from a 
prospect acquisition phase, unfortunately, because he's just not going to be here long term. And I think we are all resigned to that at this point. Yeah, there is, um, you know, there, there's so much, Tony, that is, uh, you know, when, when when somebody idly might say to you, like, man, well, what happened with the Sox this year? And it's like, well, how much time do you have? Because there's so many layers to this, uh, the front office, executives, uh, the, obviously the coaching staff, the manager, the players just not playing uh, up to what we uh, anticipated for a consistent amount of time. You know, Pedro has talked about, well, we've got the talent. The talent is good. But then he rattles off nine different things that need to change uh, this offseason uh, as they make preparations for the great rebound of 2024. This is a difficult question to kind of, you know, answer. And, and a complete answer might not even be possible. But when you, when you, as a fan that have looked at this team and followed this team so closely for so long, especially this year, can you pick a couple things and say, well, that's, we can figure that out. You know, like we don't have to move heaven and earth, that thing we could probably do. And if we did that uh, baseball thing, that might add a few more wins and we're going to be a better team just by making these types of corrections. I think the first thing is give a shit. <laughs> yeah. I think that's yeah. the that's the first thing, and it, it's probably the only one that you don't have to move heaven and earth. It, it starts with showing up to the ballpark every single day, ready to play, and do exactly what Pedro Grafol said at the beginning of the year. And that, to me, is the number one problem with this team. You've seen so many stretches of guys just not giving a shit, whether it's bullpen, front office, ownership, down to guys in the lineup every single day. It's embarrassing how much lackadaisical nonsense has gone on. I call it Little League bullshit when I see it on the field. But that is probably the number one thing I think that will get people reinvested. And it starts with leaders. There, A lot of people talk about the Jake Berger trade. It's going to get beaten to death like a dead horse over and over and over and over again because it was a bad move. But that was a guy that gave a shit. That's why people liked watching him play. For as great as Luis Robert Jr. has played this year, he's had that questioned uh, in his game at certain times. Tim Anderson, lackadaisical at times out there. A lot of mental errors. Elvis Andrews, he's one of the guys that you can actually look at in the dugout and say he's here, he's showing up every single day and, and looks like he wants to play the game of baseball. Um, so if I had to pick one thing, Nick, it would just be give a shit. Yeah, it's an outstanding answer. It's free. You know, anybody can do it. And those are the guys that you see that rise up. And, and that's what I kind of been saying is a lot of players that just have been told you're the absolute best from like when they were 12 years old up through juniors and everything else. And, and it's like, well, you don't have to really apply much. You've got God-given talent, whatever you want to say. And it's those scrappy guys like a burger that has fought back through so many different things and 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 wants it needs it i need this i have this has to go right there is no other backup plan uh i would like to see a few more of those types of guys steve i i tried to talk we, we pat and i got into it i don't know if we got to a an answer on this last episode are this did the socks miss abreu in terms of just leadership somebody a voice behind the scenes that he could kind of 
calm the storm or you could look to him and how he plays. Is that what they're lacking? Is that type of character or was it more? Well, Pedro Brickfall, sorry, you're supposed to be the one that's really going to set the tone and, and be the leader. This should be I, a great answer from Stu <laughs> I, 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 appre- I appreciate the set the tone reference there first and foremost. Uh, got it. Um, here's my thing. This stuff was going on in 2022 when Jose Abreu was here. And it became very apparent from some of his commentary in spring training that this was the end of his time with the White Sox. So was he himself really invested in this? Was he someone that would pull Aloy or Luis Robert Jr. or Johan Mercado off to the side and say, hey, you know, get your head out of your ass. That's not what we're doing here. Because to me, he didn't seem like the same guy last year. And I think especially when the second half came around, and again, as more and more talk came out about his status with the team going forward, it just seemed to me like he had checked out. Like he knew that this ship was sinking and that it was, you know, he had a life preserver and he was jumping off. And it was very telling to me that last game of the regular season when he didn't even step on the field. You know, a lot was made, and for a long time, this was a guy that you could count on in the lineup every day. You had to fight him to get him out of the lineup because he didn't want to have to call his mother to tell her that he wasn't going to play. And he sat there on the bench um, and, and just watched that final game. And then when he came back this year, it was like he didn't even want to come out and acknowledge the crowd or anything. So it was very obvious to me that this was not the same Jose Abreu from four or five years ago. So I don't think his presence being here would have really had that much of an impact personally. I was at that game, as I know so many others were, and um, incredibly disappointed. Kind of shocked, actually, um, and that he made that decision. And, And I went uh, you know, to say goodbye to the Sox, but really specifically for that is I'd like to see a Bray one last time in a uniform playing. And I'm sure, I'm sure he'll get out there for most likely his last run. And, and that was, uh, uh, that was disheartening. Um, so much uh, that this organization has done, Tony, I, I think it's also, it's forced the fan base to take a closer look at their relationship with the team. And why am I still a fan of this organization? And I just, this bothers me. And I wonder if it bothers others, but something like a, a, the lack of a Sox fest and, you know, they haven't made announcements that anything's going to happen in January just drives a wedge even deeper into this divide that's that's happening. You know, we see more, you know, Jerry sell more movements over the last couple of years than we have. Um, can that help out? Can just something like that marketing wise PR get the Sox Fest back, you know, have a better relationship with fans. Is that something that, um, you know, concerns you worries you that that could make a difference? It's very concerning, very worrying on so many levels. And and Steve and I have had this conversation numerous times. If you sort of parallel this to what's happening over in Oakland right now uh, with a team that, you know, is 
potentially most likely going to be leaving that city. All the stuff that we've heard come out this season, Nick, you, you hear Jerry sort of throw Nashville possibilities out there. Um, you know, you look at this as a, as not, I look at it as a content creator, but also as, as a fan here first and say, you know, what is that going to be like when this time comes? You know, what are they going to do with the stadium? Is relocation on the table? What, what are all these things going to mean for me? Socks are a huge part of my life. Watch pretty much every single game that they play. Uh, win, lose, could be a 100-loss season. We don't get a lot of 100-win seasons. In fact, that's not, you know, whatever. But <laughs> when when we look at this, and, and I know Steve had the opportunity to go out there the day that uh, the Oakland 68s were in town and they were doing the the cell movement. And, you know, just some of the secondhand stories I've gotten from him and from uh, our other co-host, Johnny, um, and even just chatting with some of those guys online. It, it's an incredibly sobering moment there when you think about here's a community, which I believe the White Sox fans um you know, also share that as well. There's so many different people that I've met over the course of doing this and even just going to the ballpark um, who, who are our Sox fans that this is, you know, they spend a considerable amount of time and energy and money uh, just pouring into White Sox stuff, whether it's merchandise, ticket sales, all that stuff. I really think that the the culmination of where we're at in, in terms of standing as an on-the-field product as well as the marketing has driven such a wedge, as you said, into the fans where I'm worried that if we get there, people will be so apathetic because you've already seen some of the sarcastic comments online. Just leave, just leave the city. I'll spend my, you know, weekend, summer weekends doing something else. I played a considerable lot more golf this, this summer than I normally did because I didn't have a season ticket plan this year. That wasn't because I didn't, you know, want to go to the ballpark. There was a terrible display on the field every day. I enjoy going to the ballpark. I, I actually prefer a smaller crowd so I don't have to wait in line for beer sales and all of that other good stuff and, and can you know have conversations with other fans and, and friends alike. But I really think that this organization from a marketing standpoint would benefit from there being more wins to market. And then, you know, on the other side of that, because every single thing that they try and put out there right now just gets attacked. But if you give people SoxFest, what is the end result of that going to be, Nick? I'm, I have never attended the SoxFest. I don't know if, if you were a big SoxFest guy, Steve. I'm not sure if, we've, if you've been there either. But I just feel like at this point, with how mad and angry this is, it is a powder keg. And the fan base... And, and everybody else who's involved in it is, is sort of going to look at them and say, well, why don't you throw a Sox Fest? Well, because the moment they get up on stage, they don't know how to handle these answers. They're not prepared for them. They don't know how to handle these questions that are going to be asked about why this thing is as bad as it is. You, you sort of need to fix the on-the-field product first, and they're still running this under the guides of COVID restrictions and, and all the other stuff, which you can't do much longer because every other professional sports organization is already doing these things. It was very telling to me just from a personal experience going to the NHL draft uh, this past summer uh, for the Blackhawks. And they're throwing rooftop parties, handing out stuff to their season ticket holders, 
they're upgrading tickets for their their season ticket holders to you know sit up close as the franchise is turning in a different direction. They did more for me in my first three months as a season ticket holder than the White Sox ever did in the three, four years that I held season tickets. And that's embarrassing from a, a, a large market team. And I know everybody wants to rag on, you know, White Sox and how they uh, treat their season ticket holders, but it's true. You, it's true. There's too many people in this community who have a voice now on these platforms that can tell you what it's like to be a White Sox season ticket holder versus other teams. So it's not just Sox, but start smaller than that. Start treating the people who spend the most amount of money on your product to a, a better product on the field, but start giving out little things to them. It, it's crazy that we've got a $1 game on Thursday, but they try and do these little things like that to say, you know, we're, we're you know, thank you fans. You need to do a lot more than that to win back the people who have actively cared for this organization for a long time. And Steve, we talked about it, uh, I believe on our last show, the level of apathy that we've gotten to with this fan base is beyond my comprehension because we're not supposed to be here right now. This was supposed to be a six, seven years, somewhat want to call it a decade of dominance of the AL central that they, you know, shoved down our throat so much and we can't even do that. So it, it's embarrassing all around. I don't think throwing Chris Getz in front of a bunch of angry fans at SoxFest is, is the best idea, but you know, if they try it, go ahead, maybe it'll make some people happy. I just think that it could wind up being an embarrassment for them. And that starts with the on the field product and the give a shit that I just talked about. Yeah. I have attended uh, several sax fests. Um, Ricky Renteria's first sax fest was actually pretty memorable for me. I thought he gave a very inspiring, you know, rah, rah. Like he, he really sold me. But I have found sax fest in the dead of winter to be an opportunity to rub shoulders with like-minded people. You, you run into other sax fans. You commiserate. You know, uh, you, you just it, it's it's that type of thing of, oh, there's others like me out there. And if you're going to do a sax fest, I would say restructure it the way uh, from what you've normally done. Get, maybe get rid of the Q&A. Don't even give that an opportunity. You know, maybe you have more panels. Maybe, you know, there's not an opportunity to fire questions. But it it, it feels like even when it's bad, you still have to put your face out there. You absolutely still have to give your fans a reason uh, for devoting money, time, energy beyond the I'm a fourth generation Sox fan. This is all I know. Well, that that, you know, that's going to run up uh, eventually. And it's so that's where it just hits me of how cowardice, you know, you don't got something good to say. At least give fans an opportunity to connect. They're out of towners. You know, that they don't get to go to a lot of Sox games, but they come in for the weekend and they stay at the hotel and they get to mingle with other, you know, Sox fans and get the local feel and all that. I, I think it's a nice opportunity that um, they have to figure out uh, how, to, how to get that right. Uh, they absolutely do. Um, we're going to, uh, you know, start tying this one up. But I, Steve, I, I, I usually I have been doing a Pedro Grafol quote of the week uh, and maybe in the future. Uh, we'll get a sponsor like Super Rope to, to jump in on this. But here's my uh, quote of the week from Pedro. I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, we've gone through a storm this year. Uh, this is an opportunity for myself and Chris and the staff. He assembles 
to not start over because this isn't a rebuild, but to implement things that are part of his vision and maybe a part of mine as well that I want to see done. That's your quote of the week. Where do I even begin with this? <laughs> um, maybe implement things that are part of his vision. Wasn't he tasked with implementing his vision in February in Glendale, Arizona? I find that to be absolutely hilarious to hear that come out of his mouth. Here we are on September 24th and, and thinking about him saying just a couple of weeks ago, well, you know, these are things that we've been, you know, trying to work on and implement since spring training. You're the one that was tasked with implementing those things. You have clearly failed. Why should anybody have any faith, any belief that you're going to be able to do the job next year because you couldn't this year? You were a fresh voice. I think a lot of people within this organization, maybe not so much within the organization, but within the fan base, had exhaustion from the previous regime. A lot has been made about that, and a lot was made of you got a fresh voice coming in here and a chance to do things in a new modern way. Well, that fell on its face really quick. So to hear him talking about needing to implement things and, and having a vision and working with Chris Getz and his new team on their vision, frankly, I don't want to hear it anymore. It's just, it's, it's all fluff mm -hmm. at this yeah. point until I see any kind of notable action on the field. Yeah, that's the waiting game. What we will see, uh, and even this off season, you know, I, I'm I'm waiting till uh, April or late March or whenever it is. Uh, Steve and Tony, I I say this and I mean it. You guys are awesome. Uh, you have dedicated, you know, your time, your energy, your passion. Uh, we are better for it as Sox fans for bringing uh, us what you do on a regular basis. It's been. Um, Awesome connecting with Steve over the years. Tony, we've talked a little bit just on uh, the old uh, social media platform. So glad you finally were able to, to come and, and join a, a Good Guys Talk Back episode. But thank you both so very much. Nick, it's a pleasure as always. Like I said, anytime you want to get together and, and talk socks, chew the fat, have a couple two-tree pops, you know, <laughs> for it. Absolutely, Nick. Thank you so much for having me on. Guys, uh, please, uh, if you're not following Socks on Tap, if you're not following uh, Steve and Tony, um, you know, maybe you're a little late to the game. Uh, outstanding work they do. Uh, Tony, give us uh, wh where are we finding all of this great stuff that you're doing and, and make sure you promote yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can follow us, as as you just mentioned, at Socks on Tap on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it these days. Uh, and then you can follow the larger site, uh, everything we do in Chicago sports at ONTAP Sportsnet, ONTAPSportsnet.com. Uh, I know Steve's got an article in, in the hopper that uh, looks pretty interesting out there for White Sox fans. should be coming out tomorrow. So uh, that's, once again, ONTAPSportsnet.com, socials at ONTAPSportsnet, and at Sox on Tap for our Sox-specific coverage. Yeah, uh, and Steve, go ahead, promote uh, yourself, promote that. I, and if you haven't read Steve's stuff, uh, I, I I get to it as often as I can. And, and it's still, I'm remissive of the Robin Ventura thing. You you 
uh, you you wrote it not uh, maybe a year or so ago, and we we've had you on to talk about that. You were so on point with that. Uh, it's always great stuff. So uh, go ahead and promote that. Well, it's actually very topical to something that uh, you you and Tony were talking about there. Uh, kind of highlighting my experience at the Oakland Coliseum this past Tuesday, and just talking to some of the people within the Oakland 68s and everything that they are going through and the parallels between their struggle right now that seems fait accompli with their team being uprooted. You know, they used to be rooted in Oakland. Now they're being uprooted to Vegas. And the sad reality is that could be us in about three years. And that's a, a fear that I think has been realized now and something that Jerry Reinsdorf tried to do 35 years ago. He might just do it again and he might succeed yeah. this time. Who knows? So be on the lookout for that. Yeah. Look out for that article. Uh, folks joining us on the YouTube channel, uh, trying to do this uh, every Sunday night. Thank you for jumping in on the comments. Subscribe, pass this along to other Sox fans in your life. The audio available always wherever you find your podcast. We're on uh, Twitter X at good guys TV. We've got a Facebook fan page for Pat Hester, who should be back uh, next week for Steve. Uh, for for Tony. Uh, until next time, go Sacks.